From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Australia has long been considered an international pariah on climate policy. Governments on both sides have regularly been criticised for failing to act fast enough. But one Australian, a former climate advisor to US President Joe Biden, thinks that we're uniquely positioned to become one of the most successful zero-emission economies in the world. Today, inventor and scientist Saul Griffith, author of The Big Switch, on his plan to transition Australia into a clean energy future. It's Monday, February 14. La, 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 la. Um, hello? Hello. <laughs> Sol, is that you? It is. <laughs> it's nice having I didn't know you were coming right then. <laughs> um, how are you today? I'm good. I had a swim just a few minutes ago, so I'm actually great. Excellent. Um, so thank you so much for, for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed reading your book. Uh, you're one of the first. How was it? Well, I felt optimistic after reading it, which is pretty rare in these times. Wow. I have, I have succeeded. Yeah, and hopefully the optimism holds once we've had this conversation, Sol. So uh, let's get into it. I wanted to start by asking you what your assessment is of the state of climate policy in Australia, because I know that you've recently returned home after spending the last few decades in the United States working as an advisor at times to the Biden administration on climate and then also in the private sector on a number of energy projects. So with that kind of background and and that kind of insight, what do you make of things here at home? So mostly from afar, being in the US, I followed Australian climate through the lens of essentially our federal government's announcements on the global stage. And rightfully, you could be appalled with Australia's performance over the last 25 years. Australia is taking action on climate change, is getting the results that other countries are not getting. Not according to global news headlines, criticising Australia as the weakest link for being wedded to fossil fuels. We've been in the small group of nations that's really agitated for holding back the IPCC process. Tears shed over rising seas driven by climate change with the finger pointed at Australia's coal dependence being as uncommittal and pushing out commitments as far as possible. So Australia, coming out of the COP in Glasgow, was very much lumped with some of the biggest climate villains in the world, like, you know, India, China, Russia, Brazil. So my expectations were very low of Australia. Upon arriving on the ground, I think, born of a number of things, including the forest fires in recent years, that... Australians are more ready than the rest of the world to start really actualizing change. And then I was really excited by the amount of great work that's being done at state level. And even better than both of those things, I think because Australia has had this rooftop solar revolution where the electricity that comes from your rooftop solar is the cheapest electricity you can buy in Australia, 30% of households have already got it on their roofs that 30% of Australians have already had a positive experience in participating in climate solutions. That's a higher rate than anywhere else in the world. And I think we can leverage that and say, you know, we've taken the first little step, which is small rooftop solar. Let's take the next five steps and let's lead the world. Hmm. Okay. So can you tell me a bit more about those steps and 
why you think that they are the most important thing to focus on right now. I think that a lot of people who are hungry for, you know, what can we do? You know, it was the, it's been a conundrum since the Al Gore movie where you watch the whole movie, you're like, oh, I want to be bold on climate and so what do I do? And the answer up until recently has been, well, buy a stainless steel water bottle and recycle your plastic bags. But I think deep down people know that's not actually what's going to solve the problem. And what will solve the problem is electrifying our cars, electrifying our homes, electrifying our kitchens, electrifying our heat, providing that with renewable electricity and potentially even nuclear electricity. That is the simple, short summary. And to frame it all in terms of climate, we are really at the last point where we can do that and beat a two-degree target. And then to touch upon the economics, we've seen incredible cost reductions in the price of the critical components in the past decade. Ten years ago, to buy a kilowatt hour of batteries it was $1,000 wholesale. Now it's down to about $150 wholesale, and we're going to see that go to about $75 a kilowatt hour. So you can use those cost curves to actually predict when we're going to do well economically. And in fact, if you model it out through 2030, this is not using magic or voodoo. This is just the cost curve reductions that we know are already happening. By 2030, every Australian household will be saving $5,000 a year on the cost of vehicle ownership and the cost of all of their energy. So. That's that's a thirty billion dollars a year that we don't need to be sending overseas to buy oil. You know that that is an enormous cash influx that we can expect in our communities. Right, sure, but so you absolutely can't have this conversation without talking about the fossil fuel industry. And there is this widespread view in Australia that that industry is necessary for our economic security. So, what are your thoughts on? why we believe that to be the case. Is this just down to the success of the fossil fuel industry, its ability to to capture and, and to sway public opinion and to insert itself into this debate? Well, I think I have a couple of thoughts when you say that. The fossil fuel lobby is obviously very strong. I actually think we've had a bit of a narrative problem in Australia. Australia has a very unusual economy globally. Our economy is so much based on our primary exports, a lot of which are fossil fuels. And so the people who seek to slow down action towards the solutions have had very fertile ground in Australia to run a fear-based marketing campaign. You're going to lose your jobs. We're going to lose the steel industry. We're going to lose the coal industry. We're going to lose this and that and the other. So it's been a dialogue of loss in Australia, because we've focused on the export economy. But the dirty reality and the dirty secret that no one wants to tell you is we only get the profit margin on our exports. So we only get a small fraction of the 80 billion we export, yet we have to pay full price for what we import, the 30 billion in oil. So in fact, already in Australia, this idea that fossil fuels are a net, a net export winner for us, it's not true. So the big opportunity I saw in Australia was to reorient the conversation to what's called the demand side, where we use energy and away from the supply side, because on the demand side are all of the things that we have to win. It's not about what we're going to lose. It's about the savings that families are going to reap. It's going to be about the huge number of jobs that are going to be created in our communities. It's going to be, quite honestly, if Australia does it well, we're going to expand our export industries enormously. But there is no time left for indecision. And I think what has been benefiting the fossil fuel lobby is profiting off P 
people's indecision and then purposefully making the solution sounds like they're not quite there yet or, you know, there are going to, there's options. And I think this strong messaging that I'm trying to deliver, like, now is the time to electrify everything, is really to get over those, to counter those messages. No, we know what to do. We know the timeline we have to do it. So let's, let's just do it. We'll be back in a moment. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. For Sloan Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So we have been talking about what you see as the way forward in tackling climate change in Australia. So that is shifting entirely to electricity uh, via renewables and phasing out fossil fuels. This is a plan that the fossil fuel industry obviously would oppose, but I think there's a bigger issue here, and that's the Australian government, because the amount of political will that would be necessary to make something like what you're suggesting possible is huge. It it can't be underplayed. And I just wonder, when you look at, at both sides of politics, because we are coming up to an election, do you see any hope of that kind of action? We are starting to see the right commitments being made at state level. Big news out of Victoria today is that they are going to match the Biden administration and try and cut emissions by 50% by 2030. New modelling suggests New South Wales' long-term net zero by 2050 target will attract more than $37 billion of private sector investment. What you would love is to see the upcoming election that's about to be called fought on this issue with both parties, because both of them could stand to win by selling this future to the Australian public and and then delivering on it. So I think there's not a lot of reason if you look backwards at both parties that, that we will have this level of ambition. But to be honest, it's only been possible in the past few years for anyone to sort of really be able to convincingly say, okay, the jury is in now. We have the solutions we need to cover huge portions of the economy and decarbonize them and do it well having these economic benefits, I think it's a race for politicians to do the best storytelling. There are people within both political parties, if not at federal level, who are providing the template for the language, providing the template for the plans, the regulation, the legislation, the capacity building. And it's a matter of time for the federal government to pick up on it. The time is up for the planet, so we really need to make sure that it's this election that Australia chooses the, the whichever team chooses to be the boldest and the biggest. I would say neither of them are particularly bold or big at this point. I share your I share your negativity on what we have, but 
it's not impossible to turn things around. I believe we need to make sure that the people ask for this. And if we demand it, then the politicians have to go there. And so what you're outlining, if this is possible, and, and just so we were able to achieve something like this, I mean, how much difference do you think that realistically that would make? Because so much of, of what happens in the next few years depends on, on what China and, and India and Brazil do next. So I suppose, what do you see as the advantage of trying to to pull something like this off is to try and decarbonise an economy like Australia's when when you take a step back and you look at this in in a global context? Oh, that question is fabulous. How to even answer it? The 26 in COP26 means it was the 26th conference of the parties of the International Panel on Climate Change. 26 times all of the world's governments have met and they have failed to go anywhere near the level of ambition required to give us the one and a half degrees that science demands. The very definition of idiocy is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I think if your model of change is the world will stumble through those bureaucratic institutions and collectively do this all roughly on the same time schedule, that's really not how history works and it's not how change happens. Change really happens when a small group of people make great change in one place and then that change looks so good that it's attractive to everyone else. And if you were to cherry pick the country with the easiest path to total decarbonisation, the easiest path to having that also save the citizens' money and improve the quality of lives of everyone, Australia is it. The economics work here first, two, three or four years earlier than it's going to work in America, five, six or seven years earlier than it's going to work in Europe. This is the chance for Australia to lead the world. If we go really fast and we prove that this works and we do, you know, first pilot homes, then pilot streets, then pilot small towns and pilot suburbs and show that this is the path and it is inevitable. It's not like It's not going to happen another way. We will decarbonise through electrification. The cynics will say, oh, but the climate outcome is going to be determined by the future of India, China and Africa. That is true. But we can influence how quickly India, China and Africa do it by showing them the way. Sol, thank you so much for talking to me about all of this. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays, but her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, the Australian government has evacuated the country's embassy in Ukraine as fears of a Russian invasion mount. On Sunday, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, said the remaining staff at the Australian Embassy had been ordered to leave. And in New South Wales, the state Labor opposition has won the seat of Bega, pushing the coalition further into minority government. Four by-elections were held over the weekend, following a number of high-profile resignations in New South Wales politics. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.